Good morning, church. My name is Ian, and it's that time of the service where we share in a prayer of illumination together ahead of our Bible reading and then our sermon. So if you'd like to bow your heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you abundantly satisfy your children with the fullness of your house. You give us drink from the river of your pleasure. For with you is the fountain of pleasure. In your light we see light. Lord, please grant that we may come to your house this morning and savour that fullness, that pleasure and that light as we hear your word read and expounded. And as we listen, may we desire not only to call you Lord, but to do what your word asks and commands us. By your grace, may we come to you, hear your words, and put them into practice. Then we will be like the one who built a house, who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. Father, please fill our preacher Matt with your spirit today, and help us through the preached word and your indwelling Holy Spirit to follow in the steps of the beautiful feet of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who brought us good news, who proclaimed peace, and brought us glad tidings of good things, and who proclaimed your salvation to the world. Amen. Heavenly Father uh, is certainly the focus of John chapter 14, verses 15 to 31, which is uh, where I would ask you to open your Bibles now. So John 14, 15 to 31. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord... Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. I'm, uh, I'm Matt. Uh, I'm one of the staff, uh, the pastor here, and I've got just a couple of quick practical things before we get into our message. So one, just to remind you that this week coming, as Eddie has said, we've got Saturday, we've got the um, Easter egg hunt. Sunday is Easter Sunday, but of course, Friday is Good Friday, uh, and we do have a service at 10 a.m. Eddie may have said that, and I may have missed it, but just to repeat, 10 a.m., we have a service here this Friday, and then we'll have um, Easter, uh, and then we'll have hot cross buns afterwards, um, but it will be a, um, it'll be a shorter service. Uh, announcement number two, again, just to repeat what I said before, this is a bit of an unusual service. It's a wonderful service because we have membership and baptism, but you've probably worked it out, uh, unless you've blinked and missed it, we haven't yet had any baptisms or any members, which is unusual at this stage of the sermon uh, or the service. That's because we're changing a little bit because the two people being baptised, Carolyn and Luke, are going to be baptised outside. So I'm going to preach my sermon in a bit, then we're going to do membership here, and then once we've done membership, we're going to break and all go outside. Parents are going to grab kids uh, so that we're all back for the baptisms, and then it's going to be a little bit chaotic, but we're going to try and do um, the Lord's Supper uh, together out there so that the people who have been baptised can share the Lord's Supper uh, with us. So that's why the service is a little um, topsy-turvy. Great, let's, let's start. Uh, recently, uh, I read an article uh, in an online publication that you may have heard of called The Atlantic, and it was entitled, What It Means to Be Spiritual But Not Religious. Spiritual but not religious. Uh, the, the article actually recounts the origin of the term. It's actually an origin that, that Roy discovered, I think, a few weeks ago, so I'd kind of known it, but it is an interesting origin. It states this, the term spiritual but not religious SBNR for short, one-fifth of Americans actually identify with this. Um, this term took off in the early 2000s. Uh, why? Uh, well, it took off because online dating first became popular then. And you had to identify by religion. You had to check a box. And spiritual but not religious became a nice category that said... I'm not some kind of cold-hearted atheist, but I'm not some kind of moralizing, prudish person either. I'm a nice, friendly, and spiritual, but not religious. So that's a quote from the article. And then the article goes on to itself quote uh, a professor of religion at the University of Virginia, and he says this, in the 21st century, the word church means you need to put on an uncomfortable, on uncomfortable shoes, sit up straight, and listen to boring old-fashioned hymns. 
Spirituality is seen as a larger, freer arena to explore big questions. So now me not quoting the article. Whereas religion is a one-way ticket to dreary, chafing, grey-scale prude town, spiritual but not religious is an open-ended ticket to fun town, a choose-your-own-adventure story that results liberation and joy, fruit loops and skittles. One is about do's and don'ts, black and white, yes sir, no sir. The other is about you do you. If it's true for you, then it's true. One says obey, the other says love and follow your heart. And here's the interesting thing about SBNR types, you may be one of them, is that spiritual but not religious people tend to have a lot of time for Jesus. Because he was as he's often portrayed as a free love, anti-establishment type. Now, in, in the article, back to the article now, one of the interviewees captures this sentiment as he says this, the structure and rigidity of a church is antithetical, opposed to everything Jesus represents. Jesus is on team spiritual but not religious. He's not about cold-hearted obedience, he's about love and freedom. In fact, according to the article, he's just been held hostage by the church for about 2,000 years, an institution that he would have nothing to do with if he was still around. Well, that's the view the article puts forward. And my guess is it's probably a view that you've encountered. Perhaps it's a view that you've held or currently do hold today. It's a pretty common sentiment. In fact, its heritage isn't just the last 20 years, it's the last 200 years that Jesus is pro-love and he rules. There is one problem, though. Actually, there's a bunch of problems. But the biggest one is the reality that Jesus, in fact, was about both. Both love and obedience. He doesn't pit them as enemies. He puts them as compliments. He marries command and freedom together. And if you need convincing, have a look at our verses uh, this morning. So we're in Luke, uh, not Luke, we're in John chapter 14. Verses 15 and following, and let me set the scene. We're probably familiar with it if we've been here, but this is our first time. Let me set the scene. This is Jesus' last meal, often known as the Last Supper, that he has before his crucifixion. He knows that his hour has come, that is, his death is nigh. He knows that he is only hours away from being arrested, tried, tortured, abandoned, and crucified. He knows that, so this is kind of the clutch moment in the game. He's got only a few short hours left with his disciples. And so he wants to impart to them, reiterate to them, the kind of fundamentals of Christianity of following Jesus. And the thing that he repeats more than anything else in this section is that love and obedience dynamic. Have a look at chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, is the one who loves me. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. But it's not just that Jesus commands it. He also models it. Have a look at verse 31, right at the end. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Love, command, love, obey, love, command. Contrary to SBNR, 
Jesus thinks love and obedience fit like a hand in a glove, like a horse in a cart. But actually, it goes deeper than that. Because it's not just that they fit together or they're better together. In Jesus' mind, you can't actually have one without the other. Think of it a bit like breathing. You know, breathing, you breathe in and you breathe out. Inhale and exhale. Love is the inhale and obedience is the exhale. And that kind of makes sense, right? You can't pretend to love God and then do exactly nothing that he says for you to do. It's like saying to your wife, your, your kids or your friends, I love you, but then completely ignore their wishes. I mean, that's just not love. And in John's Gospel, God the Father is called God the Father a whole bunch. He's our heavenly Father. And just as our children, if we're blessed with children or we've been children, express, express our love to our parents in obedience to listening to them, that holds true for our heavenly Father. We express our love by obeying Him. Love and obey, breathe in, breathe out. But you might say, and you'd probably have every right to say, Matt, I get breathing. Breathing's pretty easy. You're making this sound pretty easy. Breathe in, breathe out. I get it. But in my Christian life, I'm kind of grasping for air, gasping for air right now. I feel like I'm kind of drowning. I feel like I can't inhale love and I can't exhale obedience. And if that is your fear, don't worry. You're just being honest. That's all our fears. Again, think about Jesus' first audience. Who is he speaking to in the scene? He's in the upper room with his disciples. If anyone struggled to love and obey consistently, it's his disciples. Obviously, Judas with the betrayal. Peter with his foot and mouth disease, always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Or James and John as they pettily debate each other about who's the greatest. But not just them, in chapter 16, verse 32, you don't need to turn there, I'll quote it for you. He says this, a time is coming to his disciples, and a fact has come when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. In his moment of need, his direst hour, when friends should be there, there's no love, there's no obedience, there's just desertion. You see, we all struggle with love and obedience. And that's why Jesus gives us these verses and these promises. Chapter 14, verse 15 again. If you love me, keep my commands. doesn't leave us hanging. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Jesus says, I know you struggle on your own, so I'm going to give you someone to help you do this spiritual breathing exercise. And he calls this one who will help an advocate. Now, I'm in a little sidebar here because the Greek word that that's translating, because the New Testament was written in Greek, the Greek word is the word paraclete. And that's actually quite a hard word to translate into English because it covers a whole bunch of different things. That's why if you've got a different translation to ours, you might have helper, you might have counsellor, you might have comforter, or you might indeed have advocate. And they're all leg legitimate options because a paraclete is someone who comforts, protects, teaches, and defends. 
And I wonder if you notice the word another. It's another advocate. Because Jesus was their advocate. He comforted, protected, taught, defended them. And now he's sending a replacement. And I think when we think of a replacement, we usually think that's kind of like uh, the, the guy who's not quite good enough to make the team. He's substituted on kind of in the last two minutes of the 90-minute game. Or we think of the substitute teacher who's kind of got two hands in pockets, one eye on the clock, and no interest in the kids before him. No offence to our substitute teachers in the house. But Jesus actually says that this, believe it or not, this substitute advocate is actually better than him. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 7. Sixteen verse seven. For very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you spot that? It is for your good that I am going away. Jesus is saying the one I'm sending in my place will advocate better than I will. Uh, which kind of sounds crazy, doesn't it? How can you get better than Jesus and his advocacy? Well, I think the answer, the key to that is is understanding the identity of this advocate, this defender, this comforter. So flip back to chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And then he has another name in verse 26 of that chapter. Just flip down to 26. Sorry, doing a lot of flipping. But the advocate the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. This comforter, defender, counselor, advocate that Jesus is sending is none other than the Holy Spirit that he offers to his disciples, but also to us. Now, I suppose, depending a little bit on how long you've been in church land or read your Bible, it will really vary how comforting or how not so comforting that truth is. Some of us might not even know who or what a Holy Spirit is. And if that's you right now, can I say you have come to the right place, not only in terms of the church, but also these chapters, because John 14, 15, and 16 is the most in-depth, extensive treatment of who the Holy Spirit is in all of the Bible. And in fact, if you are a person familiar with the Bible and you know the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, you'll know that the the Spirit appears pretty sporadically in the Old Testament. I mean, He's there at creation, hovering over the waters. He's poured out on the prophets, on the kings. He empowers judges. He inspires craftsmen and poets and priests. He does a bunch of stuff. But He is a bit of a mystery wrapped in an enigma. And then even in Jesus' life and ministry, I mean, he's obviously there. He descends on Jesus famously like a dove. He empowers him to do great deeds. Jesus does talk about him. Even in John's Gospel, he talks about him more than the others. But he's still a pretty opaque, oblique, opaque, oblique figure. But that all changes here. Here at this moment of time, in a nameless upper room, somewhere about 30 BC, somewhere in Jerusalem, late one evening, 
Jesus gives his disciples, he gives you and me as we peer over their shoulders, so to speak, the clearest teaching in all the Bible about this enigmatic figure. Now, there's more that's taught in the rest of the Bible. This isn't exhaustive, but it is the most intensive. And so what we're going to do for the rest of our time together is we're going to look at three things that we learn about the Holy Spirit. Three things that we learn about the Holy Spirit. I want to give one little disclaimer before we go there, though. We'll get there in a moment. And my disclaimer is this. I want us to focus on the truths of the Spirit, of who He is and what He does, that are applicable to all of us. Why, why do I say that? Well, have a look at chapter 14, verse 26. Because Jesus does say some things about the Spirit that only apply then and there to His disciples. 26, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and keep it, will remind you of everything I have said to you. So this promise is for the 12 disciples who have literally heard the words out of Jesus' mouth. This will help them record that. Recall that. And we benefit from that today because we're reading John's Gospel, one of those 12 disciples whom the Holy Spirit guided and inspired to recount and then write down the words that Jesus spoke. That's a promise for them, not for all of us. Okay, so having had that little clarification, our three things, and this is the most classic Presbyterian sermon you're ever going to get because they're three points and they all begin with a P. Right, textbook Presbyterian. One, personal, the Spirit is a person. Two, peaceful, the Spirit brings peace. Three, piercing, the Spirit pierces. Personal, peaceful, piercing. First one's the shortest one, the Spirit is personal. Now, that might seem kind of obvious to us if we we know our Bible, but I think we often forget it. And I know that often I forget this because at least one of you over the years, and not that long ago, has come to me and told me that, Matt, that sermon, that was kind of fine or whatever, but you kept on talking about it when you talked about the Spirit, which is pretty terrible, so mea culpa, don't, don't be like me there. But it does show you that we kind of have this slippage, don't we? And in fact, if you've had a conversation with your friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witness, you'll soon learn that that's exactly how they think about the Spirit. It's an impersonal force that kind of, God kind of beams down from heaven up there to earth. But it's vital that we know that the Spirit, it isn't and it can't be an impersonal force. And not just because of the pronoun he, although that is an indicator, but also because of what he does. It's so personal. He advocates, he defends, he comforts, he teaches. And we'll see in chapter 15 and 16, he convicts. See, the Spirit has to be a personal being because he does personal work. Uh, Indeed, you'll probably know that the Spirit is one of the three members of the Trinity. That is, the Christians believe that God is three in one, one substance, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three share the same substance, are in such tight relationship, such inextricable connection, that when you talk about one, you can't help but talk about the three, because they can't be separated, they can't be divided. That sounds like a kind of theological truth, it's kind of highfalutin. Let me give you a practical way that that pans out in our verses. So 14 to 16, remember, big scene, Jesus comforting his disciples, he's saying, I'm going to send the Spirit down, I'm going up to my Father in heaven, send my Spirit down to you. So it's all about Spirit, Spirit, Spirit coming and indwelling his people. 
But have a look at verse 23 of chapter 14. 14, 23. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. You know, hold on, hold on. You've just been talking about going home to be with your Father in heaven. You've talked about the Spirit coming down and meeting and being with us here. And now you're saying that, that you and the Father are coming to dwell on us? Kind of, is it the Spirit or is it the Father and the Son? Which one? And the answer is yes. Where there is the one, there is the three. All three people act inseparably. Yes, the focus might be on one person, but if you have the Spirit, then you have the Father and you have the Son. So point one, that the Spirit is a person, a divine person, in fact, brings us to number two. The Spirit gives peace. The Spirit gives peace. So again, our setting, we think about this upper room scene, Last Supper, and it's natural to turn our attention and our focus to Jesus. And we ask ourselves these questions, what would it be like to know that your death is imminent? That the dread of what awaits you, that the physical pain, sure, but the spiritual anguish of separation from your father, of bearing the sin of the world, the spilt drops of bloody perspiration, the bitter taste of betrayal and ridicule, the torture, the, the abandonment, all eyes are rightly focused on Jesus. But spare a thought for our disciples. The confused, conflicted, and if we're honest, often clueless disciples. The soon-to-be bereaved and orphaned disciples. Think about their narrative, their journey. They've left everything to follow this strange, beautiful, frustrating, mysterious man. They've left wives and lives, children, jobs, homes, all abandoned. Three years on the road, nowhere to lay their head. He was a brother to them, a teacher to them. He was a God to them. Nothing, right now, nothing in their world makes sense apart from Jesus. And he's soon to depart from them. What are they going to do? Where's it all going to end? And so Jesus, classic Jesus, despite knowing that he is going to face the worst thing that anyone could ever face in, in a million, billion, trillion years, whatever it would mean to be separated from your eternal father as eternal son, to have the weight of the world, evil, vileness on you, all that, and yet he turns his attention to them. Chapter 14, verse 1, our frame, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He consoles his lost sheep, his children. And Roy showed us last week a bunch of the ways that he promises to console them. But in our section, 15 to 31, there's two big consolations. Number one, he promises the resurrection. That it will not be over Cadovas when he dies. Chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me more, but you will see me. Or verse 28 of chapter 14, you heard me say I'm going away and I am coming back to you. Jesus comforts his disciples knowing it's going to be hell on earth for three days 
but I will return for a time. And that is a tremendous comfort, no doubt. We celebrate it next Sunday. A most precious truth. But that actually isn't his focus here. The other consolation is his focus, which is the coming of the Advocate, the Spirit. He will leave them for a time when he's on the, in, in the grave, but also for a much longer time when he ascends to God's right hand after his resurrection. And it will be the Spirit that will be there to bind their broken hearts, that will calm their turbulent souls. He will be their peace. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, this is an irrevocable, permanent peace. See, I'm not giving like the world does with one hand and takes it back with the other. No, he is here to stay with you. And in fact, if you've come to this church for, for, for a bit of time, you'll know that we often end the service with these words I'm about to share with you. This is the Apostle Paul from 20, 30 years later capturing this truth. He says this in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that is and leads to our peace. And this has got two aspects to it, just quickly. So one's an existential aspect. That is that we do experience this peace as Christians. Many of us in our dark nights of the soul, moments of deep unrest, unrest, we mutter a prayer, and there is a supernatural calmness that comes over us. Not always, not as consistently as we like, but there are moments when grief and pain and despair overwhelm and the Spirit calms. But it's not just an emotional state. It's not just a trick of the mind. It's not just serenity now, serenity now. Because this peace has an anchor. It's rooted in the fact that we have peace with God. That because of Jesus' death, His blood shed to wash away our sin, the wall between us and God has been knocked down, and now we're united with Him. God dwells within us. We're never alone. And so that gives us a deep existential yes, but a deep real peace. And that brings us to our final point. The Spirit pierces. The Spirit pierces. Well, recently I've got into the uh, crazy world of backyard lawns. Is anyone here a backyard lawn fanatic or front lawn? Yeah, I've got a few. Yeah, we've got two here. Three. Thanks, Tom. Yes. Well, unlike Tom's, which is like 1,000 square metres, mine's only 22, which is what makes this quite amusing. So I've spent a lot of time on the, uh, on the internet learning to distinguish between different types of buffalo, learning the difference between an empress and an empire, zoysia, cooch from Kakayu, Queensland blue and winter green. And again, ridiculous, because I've only got 22 square metres of turf. Anyway, my favourite part of this journey has been being part of WA Lawn Addicts Facebook group, which along with Best Burgers of Perth is probably the best Facebook group there is. And this uh, group has taught me, there's a post every 18 seconds, I think, there's about 40,000 people on there. 
one of the things it's taught me is that there are many things you should be wary of that you should live in permanent state of panic over about your lawn. But the most dangerous thing, the most deadly, is a thing in WA at least called hydrophobic soil. Yes, that's right, correct gasp. Uh, and, and as the name implies, that was really good. That was really good. <laughs> I wish I'd planned that, but I didn't. <laughs> uh, as the name implies, as the name implies, the soil fears the water. Now, it obviously doesn't literally, like our good man back there, fear water. But what it means is that the soil repels the water. The water can't kind of break into the surface. It can't penetrate the soil to then hydrate the lawn, and the lawn simply languishes and then ultimately dies. Why do we go there? Well, as we work with these, it's a long bow, but it will work. As we follow our disciples, actually not just our disciples, as we follow all of the history of God's people from Adam to the disciples, all of the Old Testament, we learn that their hearts and their minds and their souls were lawophobic and loverphobic. That is, God's beautiful and life-giving law, His teachings, His loving affection could not touch their souls. In fact, Israel's, call it their soul soil, much like West Aussie soil, was dry and sandy, stony, and their hydrophobic hearts, neither law nor love, could penetrate. It's a sad tale. But there is a silver lining. Because way back when, 600 years before Jesus, almost 3,000 years ago, a prophet called Ezekiel promised that this would one day change promised that there would be one day when he would give them new soul soil. He would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that love and law and light could penetrate and dig deep roots. And he says in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, I'll read it to you. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will give you my spirit. I will put it in you and move you to follow my decrees and carefully obey my laws. Fast forward 600 years to our upper room scene, and Jesus says to his deaf, dumb, hard-hearted disciples who just don't get it, he says, that's all about to change. I'm about to send you the Spirit, and you'll finally get it now. You'll finally do it. You'll finally live it. The law and love of mine will penetrate your hearts. And it's true. Jesus rises, he ascends, he sends down the Spirit at Pentecost, the church is born, and the world is irrevocably changed. Men who are cowardly and timid become bold, wise, outrageous for Jesus. And Jesus says here, he's better than me. Because I'm stuck on the outside, so to speak, teaching you truths, but it's not touching you, is it? But he's going to get under your skin. He's going to pour life directly into your dead heart, spiritual water into your dry souls. 
And you see, unlike me, I'm only here for a short time. I'm about to go, but he's with you forever. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. That is what will take the truths of Jesus down into their bones and marrow, transforming their black hearts from sin and death to love and life, helping them to both love and obey. Love and obey. Well, let's end by coming back to our start. There's several problems with being spiritual but not religious. But the biggest single one is that it relies on your heart being the guide. There's no truth out there. You must follow the truth in here. But the problem is you can't trust your heart. Our hearts, like Israel's heart, were law and love phobic. Our heart is shonky. He's dodgy. He's corrupt. Jeremiah tells us in the Old Testament, he's deceitful above all things. He says yes in one breath and no in the next. The great author C.S. Lewis famously, famously wrote this about his conversion, his becoming a Christian. For the first time, I examined myself with a serious practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Spiritual, not religious, sounds nice, sounds friendly. But you end up obeying a dark master, your soul. What you and I and all from disciples from Adam on need is truth and love and life to flood our hearts, to transform our inner being, and only God's Spirit can do this. And you'll know it's happened because he turns on the lights and you can see for the first time the darkness of your soul in full, vivid, horrendous technicolor. But it's not just that. Because once he's in there, Slowly but surely for many of us, he starts renovating your heart, starts changing it, starts beautifying it, starts making it a fitting home for him, for the Father, and for the Son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the spirit that he sends. We are so grateful for the spirit, the way he changes our hearts, our minds, our lives. Father, I pray that you might live with us, to help us live within us and help us keep in tune with the spirit, to keep in step with it. I pray that you might continue to make our hearts and our hands, our lives be a fitting home for you. In Jesus' name, amen.